when South Sudan finally became independent after a 56-year struggle and a bitter secession from Sudan, it was a dream come true for many. Roughly the size of the United Kingdom and Germany combined, the new country had its own passport, as well as football and basketball teams, singing a national anthem under their own flag. One of the most diverse nations in Africa, with more than 60 languages and dozens of ethnic groups, South Sudan was hailed as a way out of decades of strife. But 10 years after independence, visitors to the capital Juba will see a country suffering from underdevelopment and extreme poverty, the direct result of five years of civil war that stymied the transformation of the young country into a viable state. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Ahmed Maher. I traveled to South Sudan to see how the world's youngest country has fared during a decade of independence and instigate what the future might hold for a nation brought to the brink of years of brutal conflict. Before we start, please make sure to subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to get the latest episodes. South Sudan gained independence in 2011, born of a peace agreement reached in 2005, which saw the end of 22 years of civil war in Sudan. Although we will not forget. But only two years after the hard-won separation from Sudan, the country fell into another deadly conflict in 2013 that continued until 2018. Fighting broke out amid a leadership struggle between President Salva Kiir Miardet and his vice president Riek Machar, who represented the country's two largest tribes, the Denka and the Nuer respectively, and competed for the country's vast resources. Some people we spoke to in the south whispered that they would have voted to remain united with Sudan if they had only known the difficult years that lay ahead, referring to a Saudania which in Arabic means the unity of Sudan. The South Sudanese civil war is believed to have resulted in close to 400,000 deaths, according to a report published in 2018 by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and financed by the U.S. State Department. Nearly 3.9 million people, mostly women and children, were forcibly displaced, many of them more than once. About 2.3 million people fled to neighboring countries in search of safety. The conflict and a drought also plunged the country into famine in early 2017. The United Nations World Food Programme said it helped to feed about half of the country's population in 2020, with about 6 million people receiving food aid. And the proportion of the population living under the international poverty line rose from 51% in 2009 to 82% in 2016. Living under the poverty line means less than $2 a day. There were great expectations for South Sudan after it gained independence. Its creation was the result of a landmark agreement in 2005 that ended Africa's longest-running civil war. Made up of Sudan's 10 southernmost provinces, the new country was the first to be founded in Africa since Eritrea broke away from Ethiopia in 1993. A power-sharing agreement brought the most recent fighting to an end in 2018, 
but it took until February 2020 for the rivals Miardet and Mashar to strike a unity deal for a coalition government after several false starts and short-lived peace deals. The country's leaders say they have learned hard lessons, but with the country still largely divided along tribal lines, significant hurdles remain in the way of a lasting peace. General Lul Kwang is the spokesperson for the South Sudanese army. It had been a challenge and that's why the national dialogue was initiated so that the grievances could be pointed out and the way forward. And uh, the national dialogue document contains a lot of recommendations on how this problem could be overcome, including the need to appreciate our diversity. Our diversity should not be a source of division, but rather it should be a source of, of strength. We have different cultures, we have different beliefs, we have different norms, but they should be complementary to each other. We should not look at, we, I should not look at my tribe as the supreme tribe. Okay, every tribe has something that it adds to the national, uh, to our national, national identity. So the need for these different tribes to live in peace and harmony has been stressed in the national dialogue. At some stage during the war of struggle, others worked very hard to bring peace to Sudan then. And also when we started having our own, our own internal problem, neighbors also worked very hard to bring peace. But now on the 10th anniversary, starting from last year, we have become peacemakers in the region. And one good example of this, one successful example, is the success, uh, successful mediation of peace talks between different rebel groups that are fighting, that have been fighting the Sudanese government for very many, many, many years. If the tribal tensions in South Sudan can be contained, it will be the cornerstone to lasting peace. But it's not the only problem facing the young country. Today, the typical income of a civil servant is around $2 per day, according to the World Bank. Widespread poverty is the main reason South Sudan ranks 187th out of 189 countries in the Human Development Index and also helps to explain why the average life expectancy is only 57 compared with the global average of 72. Rebecca Nayandeng Garang Demabior is one of the five vice presidents of the unity government. Her husband was John Garang, leader of the Sudan People's Liberation Army from its inception in 1983 until the peace agreement in 2005. My husband used to say that a poor nation is a nation where the population are poor. A rich nation is a nation where people population are rich. It, a government does not have resources anywhere. Their primary resources is human beings. And then you develop them so that they can build the economy. You get, you get money from those people. Where, do, where does government get money? It's from the people. Talk with the banks so that banks can give loans. You guarantee those things. Let the youth go to business. For example, if I'm the president of this country, I want to see everybody busy because I need money. I need money to run this country. There's no government without money. A government cannot function without money. The World Bank says South Sudan experienced near hyperinflation because of its civil war, which caused a 60-fold increase in the prices of basic goods in an already fragile economy 
where most work is self-employment in agriculture. The country's currency has depreciated nearly 100-fold since independence, and a parallel market for U.S. dollars has developed, with a gap of 100% or more between the parallel and official exchange rates. One U.S. dollar equals nearly 500 South Sudanese pounds in the unofficial market. The coronavirus pandemic and recurrent lockdowns have brought imports of food and medical supplies from Kenya and Uganda to a standstill. Hundreds of thousands of children in South Sudan are facing an uncertain future. According to UNICEF, more than 70% of the country's children are not in school. Independent monitors accuse the country's political elites of exploiting South Sudan's ethnic diversity to achieve personal gains. The World Bank says there is no transparency on how the country manages oil revenues, production and exports. They say this is all shrouded in secrecy and resources have been poorly managed. The latest round of conflict has soaked up most of the available funds. South Sudan ranked 179 out of 180 on the Corruption Perception Index of Transparency International which has become the leading global indicator of public sector corruption. Rebecca Garang says self-interest is one of the biggest challenges for the political culture in South Sudan. This is a crisis. In 2015, those who were negotiating in, 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 in Addis were very few parties. But because of this greediness that we, I need for myself, I need for myself, you know, we don't put our country first. We don't put our people first. We put ourselves first. This is a crisis. If you ask us in South Sudan as politicians, being a woman or a man, ask them, what is a politician? I don't know whether you will be able to get an answer. Because politician is me. But for me, that's not the case. A politician is a person who has people at heart. People who represent the interests of the people. This is a politician. But in our case, why we have crisis? Because a politician is me. I, and that's it. Many South Sudanese suspect foul play in the government's handling of the economy. One South Sudanese woman who works for a Norwegian aid agency in the capital, but didn't want to be identified, told me, it's mind-boggling that South Sudan has an ocean of oil reserves, a third of the reserves in sub-Saharan Africa, but remains one of the most impoverished and least developed countries in the world. But the country's leaders have promised to forge a political system based not on tribalism or self-interest, but on democracy. Nicholas Haysom is the UN Special Representative for South Sudan and head of the UN mission in the country. It was a country that... uh whose birth was greeted with considerable optimism at the time. And undoubtedly, there's been some disappointment with what's been achieved uh, in the intervening 10 years. The political elites or stakeholders in South Sudan have spent a considerable amount of time stitching together what is called here a revitalized peace agreement. Uh, which is an attempt to patch up a previous peace agreement in a way which is more likely to be lead to a successful uh, outcome. 
and they've been working very hard on implementing that agreement. Now, quite frankly, the progress in implementation has been slow up till now, but there is evidence uh, that the pace is picking up uh, somewhat. South Sudan's leaders have for now laid to rest their ethnic rivalries and launched a nationwide campaign led by a unified army to disarm civilians and negotiate with the few splinter groups that could threaten the peace agreement. But the management of South Sudan's vast untapped natural resources could emerge as a point of contention once more. The peace has led to many ambitious projects going forward. The National Unity Government has plans to build a major dam on the Nile to generate electricity and protect the country from cascades of devastating floods every year and improve critical infrastructure, help children to access education and create a digital economy to fight corruption. The country seems to be on the road to post-conflict recovery at last. But South Sudan has other potential sources of wealth. The country is believed to hold large mineral and metal deposits. It has vast tracts of viable farmland, forests, and the potential to generate clean hydroelectric power from the Nile. However, the country is highly vulnerable to climate change and natural disasters such as massive floods and invasion of desert locusts. Deputy Foreign Minister Deng Dao Deng Malik describes his government's plans. The government has a plan to build a dam for the generation of electricity and power because you cannot have a country without industrialization. If you want to industrialize, you have to build the dam. Any water, any water can cause a problem to most of these countries. Most of South Sudan now is flooded, uh, underwater, you know, underwater as we speak. Our view is that the issue of Renaissance Dam should not be a point of conflict, but should be a point of having an opportunity to discuss and see how you accommodate what the Ethiopian government objective for the dam. Once we have not been given an opportunity as a country to think, to plan, we have been kept at war. A necessity because we cannot import electricity for this for the needs of the growing population of the South. Of course you can say yes, we will import electricity from Renaissance Dam. We will import the, the, the electricity from Uganda, from Kenya, from Sudan. It's fine, but that's for a temporal time. But you have to think as a country for something durable, sustainable, because we are projecting a population of South Sudan by 50 years would be 50 million or this million. So you look at the needs of the population. You look at the growing industries. It has a lot of implication with issue employment. We have natural resources that is in the region. Nobody has this money. We have oil deposit. We have mineral deposit, we have the forest product, you have also the agriculture, you have the livestock and fisheries, you have the human resource. We have this as a country. South Sudan's leaders say they are determined to maintain peace in order to create a prosperous future. With generations involved in grueling civil war, first in Sudan and later within South Sudan itself, the appetite for peace is apparent.
But will the country's next general elections expected in 2023 expose the fault lines between the country's main tribes? Nicholas Haysom from the UN says there is hopefully too much at stake. But you know, it has tremendous potential. It has uh, really quite considerable uh, resources, mineral resources, uh, uh, including oil. But it has uh, and is often referred to as a potential breadbasket for Africa. It has uh, fabulous uh, lands and uh, uh, access to water. Um, it's, uh, it has a potential to produce much more than it needs uh, agriculturally. Um, but none of that is possible without peace. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Ahmed Maher. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time to leave a review, we would love to know what you think. Thanks this week to General Lul Kuang, Rebecca Garong, Nicholas Haysom, and Deng Dao Deng Malik. This week's episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison.